going to go ahead and get started. Um, if you want to get seconds afterwards, again, you can always do that. There's some desserts, there's some uh, leftovers, and um, you can grab a to-go thing too if you need to run. They'll get you that in the back. So keep that in mind. As always, um, we ask you please tip the kitchen staff. It goes straight to them, and it's a thank you for the food that comes out. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything other housekeeping tips, so we are going to jump back in. We're in Judges. We're in chapter 5 this week. It is a song. Yes, I thought you said we're in Psalms. I was like, you're very confused. <laughs> yes, we are in Judges 5, and much like at the Exodus account, in the Exodus account you had a, a battle by God on the part of His people, and it was a supernatural victory, and it involved the overthrowing of powerful chariots, and the people who were pursuing or attacking Israel were all destroyed, and then there was a celebration in song. That was Exodus 14 and 15. Well, that's exactly what we have in Judges 4 and 5. And this time, instead of the song of Miriam, it's the song of Deborah. And we saw last week the narrative account of the battle and of what happened. And so now what we're going to do is get a poetic um, celebratory anthem about this event. And this chapter, Judges 5, is arguably the oldest written part of, uh, certainly of Judges, but perhaps uh, one of the oldest sections of the Hebrew Bible. Not the oldest, but one of. And it goes very, very far back. The language used is an archaic form of Hebrew. So it's kind of like our English versus King James English or even Shakespearean English or something like that. And so <clears throat> the, um, there, because of that and because it's poetry, there's a lot of ambiguity in a number of the passages. Like 80% of the verses in this chapter can be translated in more than one way just because of the nature of poetry. There's ambiguity. So this is a case if you're reading an NIV or you're reading a New Revised Standard, you're going to read kind of different sentences completely. And you'll wonder where that comes from. And so where it comes from is the fact that words can have more than one meaning and the fact that poetry is much more fluid and ambiguous and it's not as precise in its terminology or in its grammar. So interpreters, they have a challenge when they're translating this chapter. They have to figure out how to give it to you and in, in, in a way that makes sense in your language what they think is the best reading of the original. So if you if you want to see the range of the meanings, go online to the Net Bible sometimes. Um, just search NET Bible, Net Bible. It's because it's done on the internet. But uh, it also stands for New English Translation. And it's got, um, I think, 600,000 translator notes. And they're hyperlinked. So you just, you know, there'll be, f this chapter's full of them. And you just click on a button and it'll pull up like alternate reading or other translations say this. Or, it's just a helpful resource to have. You can download it on your phone. Uh, the Bible app has the, uh, the Uversion app has the Net Bible and about a dozen, two dozen other translations. So just be aware of that. Don't be lazy Bible readers. <laughs> like, don't just settle for what's in your favorite Bible. Um, you know, really dig sometimes and, and, and sift through and see, and you'll be surprised what you find. Because sometimes there's some treasure in these alternate translations, or sometimes having more than one translation makes you then have to wrestle, hey, what do I think this means? What makes the most sense in this passage? And it, it, it forces a humility on us as interpreters that I think is a healthy thing, not an unhealthy thing. So 
Just keep that in mind because this whole section is one song. Uh, think as, as we begin this, think back to 1999. Think back to, what's today? Uh, September 10th, right? So think back to September 10th, 1999. What were you doing then? <laughs> yeah, you were. You were way born by then. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows what they were doing on 9-11. But, but think back, a couple years before that, just, I mean, just uh, what were you doing that year or that time? Imagine, the, the reason that I'm having you do this is because that was 20 years ago. 1999 was 20 years ago. So imagine praying for something then, in 1999. And like a national thing or, or a big thing, like a life-changing thing and praying for it and, and longing for it or having a crippling illness diagnosed in 1999 uh, or losing a job and, and being without income since 1999. Imagine, just I'm, I'm trying to give you a span of time that you can sink your mind into and imagine that being alleviated or that prayer being answered or that disease being healed yesterday. Like literally yesterday, okay? So that's, that gives you a, an idea of a time frame. So that's what was going on in Israel, okay? Israel for 20 years had been under the oppression of the Canaanite king, Yabin, who we met last week, or Jabin as some of the English translators say, and they had been oppressed by him for 20 years, that means that they had lived under military occupation, basically, or, or eking out an existence up in the foothills because the valleys and the roads were per, uh, per, uh, patrolled. Um, just imagine that, and then, it, and then it being not just answered prayer, but miraculously answered prayer, overwhelmingly answered prayer. So that's what Israel experienced last chapter. We got a telescoped event of it in, in narrative form, but 20 years of oppression followed by a, an incredible and a supernatural deliverance by God from a hated enemy is a massive event. It's a major event. And it gets lost because it's so quickly read over. Oh, the Canaanites oppressed Israel 20 years. That just gets glossed over so we can get from Ehud uh, story to Shamgar to Deborah and Barak. Like we just kind of are like reading it along, but sometimes it's helpful to just stop and think about that. 20 years of being oppressed. And when I say oppressed, I don't mean it like some people mean it today where if you don't say Merry Christmas, they say you're oppressing them. Not stupid stuff like that. Like literal oppression. Like actually being oppressed. Being, being robbed, being plundered, being killed. Um, actual oppression that we really can't imagine unless you've spent time overseas in other places. Uh, we, we just we, we don't relate to it. But that's what's going on. And it's helpful sometimes because, I promise we'll get into the chapter, but I just want to emphasize this. Because we've seen it in Genesis when God uh, appeared to Abraham the first time, Genesis 12, and He made this grand promise. And then He doesn't appear to Abraham for almost 20 more years. We just gloss over that. Genesis 12, 13, 14. We're just reading along. Man, God and Abraham must have been hanging out all the time. No, they weren't. They weren't talking all the time. There were decades of silence sometimes. And Israel goes into Egypt, and then they're there for 400 years. So 
I say that because I, we have a tendency, any problem we see that we're in, we think, how long am I going to be in this? This is, oh my gosh, how long? You know, and, and it turns out to be a couple of weeks or a couple of months or, you know, maybe sometimes a couple of years. But we just get impatient with God and we think He needs to answer or else He's not doing anything. And as a reader of the Bible, you need to realize, we need to always remind ourselves, God would go, and these are the, these are the heavy hitters of the faith. The Abrahams, the Debras. I mean, these are the, the, the if you want to put like a Mount Rushmore of Bible, heroes. These are the people I'm talking about. And God would go for decades between talking to them sometimes. So just let that sink in when you're going through something that's really challenging. And you're just like, where is God in this? Realize how God's worked in the past and it gives us a perspective and it gives us ability to be patient. It doesn't make it any more pleasant. I have a friend, I have two friends who have crippling disease that's basically taken them, made them bedridden in their mid-30s. Both were successful, beautiful, attractive, uh, active, physically engaged uh, young women and almost bedridden now because of this disease that they've been suffering through. And, and for years, like one of them's had it for you know, going on three years now. And so it doesn't make things like that. And you all know people that have experienced things or you've gone through it yourself. It doesn't make it easier. It doesn't mean like, oh, okay, well, that makes everything better. Not that, but what it does is it gives you a deeper foundation when you are feeling that despair, when you are feeling overwhelmed, when you are feeling like you just can't make it another day. It gives you a foundation of saying you can because they did. And if they did, you can because it's the same God you're serving. And He doesn't change. And so sometimes that's what we need to get through what we're going through, to get through the 20-year oppression, uh, to get through the crippling disease or the, you know, whatever it is, just the never-ending job search or never-ending, uh, you know, whatever you're dealing with. So keep that in mind as we read this song because now we're reading the end of that. So we're reading looking back when, when it finally does break, when relief does come, when deliverance does come. It is a time for celebration. And rightly so. And when there's been somebody who's been oppressing and, and, and persecuting you for decades, then there's a deep, godly, holy desire to see justice done to that person. And that's something that we as Christians sometimes struggle with because Jesus says, love your enemies. But Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But He didn't say you've got to like your enemy. And He didn't say you have to be happy about their persecuting you. Love is seeking the highest good for somebody else. That's it. It has nothing really to do with how you feel about the person. It's what you do in relation to the person. And do you seek their well-being? Do you seek their highest good? Or do you try to subvert them? And do you try, you know, so love is a deeper thing than just how we feel. And when there are oppressive regimes or when there are oppressive conditions we're facing, then there's a, something godly, and the Psalms give us this permission, there's something godly about being able to cry out for deliverance. And then when God finally does answer that deliverance, however He does, to be able to celebrate that. And sometimes that makes us a little uncomfortable, in, in, especially as Christians, again, because we're just taught always be happy about everybody, always love everybody, always be nice to everybody, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, uh, judgment you should never long for. You know, and it's like, well, actually, no, we know that's not true. Everybody cheers in the movie when the bad guy finally gets what's coming to him. That's a, that's a deep-seated reality in our life of concepts like justice and righteousness and holiness. But the key is, in biblical faith, 
we're not to be the ones that go out and vigilante enact that justice and holiness and, and, and retribution. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. But when He does repay, then that's a time for celebration. And that's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is always vindication for God's people and destruction of God's enemies. And those are two sides of the same coin. Because destruction of God's enemies usually is the vindication of God's people. And that's what we see in this song. So, chapter 5 of Judges, on that day, Deborah and Barak, notice Deborah's name came first. Again, God's got no problem with women that are empowered being in positions of authority. And we see that in Deborah. And what that does for you know, what roles and women can have in churches and all of that, we talked about a little bit last week. Let the rest of the Bible fill, what out, fill out what you think about that. But just know that the concept of a woman taking a lead in a situation, whether it's prophetic or whether it's military or whether it's judicial, at least in this case, God doesn't really have a problem with it. In fact, it's His solution to what Israel's facing. So it says, On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. When the princes in Israel take the lead, or if you have other translation, I'm going to give you multiple whenever we're reading, because some of you may be reading New Revised or some others. But it, or it could say, when the princes or when the rulers in Israel let down their hair or loosen their hair. And it's a figure of speech. And, and there's, we don't know exactly what it means. So the NIV is take the lead is kind of a guess uh, on what it means. Like, like, I don't know. Look to the commentaries for that. But basically, when the princes of Israel take their lead slash loosen their hair, when the people willingly offer themselves, and that's going to be explained in just a minute, when the people offer themselves, bless the Lord. Or NIV says praise the Lord. But that's how it begins. When, 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 when things are happening and when, when the leaders are raised up, it's kind of the sense of that idiom or that picture, or, or when, when it's time for things to happen, and the people come and offer themselves to be part of it happening, bless the Lord, because God can use that. And God does use that. He's about to. So verse 3. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. And these would be the Canaanite kings, the pagan rulers, all of the people outside of Israel. I will sing to Yahweh. I will sing. I will make music to Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is The audience to this is, is Israel, but it's to be sung in celebration of Israel in Canaan. So there's going to be, this is a song of Yahweh. This is not a hymn to Baal. This is not a hymn to Chemosh or Moloch or Anath or any of the Egyptian gods. This is a hymn to Yahweh and celebrating Yahweh as the true warrior king God of Israel. Verse 4, O Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, this is south, this is down in Edom, this is Israel coming out of Egypt, they came around the Dead Sea. They came up through Edom. They came from Mount Seir up through Edom. That's what that is. Into the Promised Land. So this is depicting God as a warrior going before His people, bringing them into the land. When you marched from the land of Edom, the earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before Yahweh, the one of Sinai, before Yahweh, the God of Israel. All of these things being described, these are cosmic meteorological phenomenon. Guess who is in charge of these things in Canaan? Baal. Baal is the one who rides on the storm. Baal is the one who brings the rain. Baal is the one who makes the mountains quake. Baal is the one who sends lightning and thunder. That is Baal's territory. And so Israel is specifically saying, nope. This is Yahweh. He's the one doing this. And so the victory of Yahweh, the victory of Deborah, Barak, 
um, and, and we'll find out, Jael, over Sisera and King Yabin's forces was a victory of God over the gods of Canaan. Just like the victory at the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh, the plagues of Egypt. If you weren't here for that, check the podcast. You can listen to the whole book of Exodus. But just like all of those victories over Egypt were not Israel's victory over the armies of Egypt, they were God's victory over the gods of Egypt. So just like what happened in the Exodus, now it's the same thing with Canaan. God is victorious over Baal on Baal's own turf. And that's a huge theme in the ancient Near East because gods were seen as having power in their lands. And Baal was the god who came from Mount Zaphon up in the north. And he came from Mount Zaphon riding on the clouds, bringing the thunder and the lightning, and therefore bringing the crops and the rains and all of this stuff. Not so, says Deborah. Yahweh's the one, and he's coming from Mount Seir in the south. Complete opposite direction of Baal. So everything about this is contrasting Yahweh's rule as the true king, the true God of Israel, with the claims of Baal. So verse 6, the setting. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the roads were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. This is an interesting point because it, when I said it last week, the, the judges overlapped. And they didn't all just consecutively rule. So this tells us that while Shamgar was doing his thing against the Philistines in this part of the country, southeast, Jael, who we're going to read about later, the time of Deborah, was happening up in the north. So there was some concurrency in these judges' reigns and these judges' rules. But in the days... In those days, the roads were abandoned, and the word for roads is not the normal word for road, it's the word for caravan, trade route. The trade routes, the roads, the, we would say the highways were abandoned, and the people took to winding paths. Why? Because of the, the unruliness, because of the violence, because of it wasn't safe. It's not safe to take a caravan. You're living under Canaanite oppression. And so there's, there's chaos, there's anarchy, there's, um, you know, might makes right. And so for safety reasons, this is an oppressive situation. People, especially the Israelites, are having to go to the side roads. They're having to take the long ways. They're having to hide themselves. There's not free trade. There's not uh, normal life. Things are, things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're oppressive. In verse 7, I'm going to read you the NIV first. It says, village life in Israel ceased ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. So the NIVs, what they're saying is that um, these conditions, even village life was suffering, suffocated under this. And it can happen when you're not free to move, when there's no freedom of movement, when there's no freedom of trade. Uh, it's oppressive. And village life really does grind to a halt. And, and people eke out a living. And it's a, it's a hardship. Uh, that you have to live under these conditions. And so that's what at least in IV translates this passage as saying. If you read the New Revised, it would read slightly different. It would say, um, warriors in Israel grew fat off of the plunder because I arose, Deborah, a mother in Israel. And so New Revised takes it as talking about what's going to happen, Israel's victory. In IV translates it as the conditions before that. So it doesn't really matter regardless because the outcome is going to be the same but I, I think the NIV is a little more correct on this one uh, anyway it says village life ceased until I Deborah arose arose a mother in Israel when they chose new gods war came to the city gates now this is where I think NIV doesn't maybe get it uh, because the other way you can read that line is when God chose new leaders war came to the city gates 
And the text can go either way. So if the NIV is reading is right, it's saying that when Israel chose to go after new gods, that's when this oppression came. So they are suffering from their own defeat. And that's true. So that's, where, that's not a wrong thought. Um, or what this passage is saying is when God chose new leaders, i.e. Barak and Deborah, then war came, finally. Like the people rose up and they went to battle. So two different ways of reading, but again, this is ancient, ancient poetry and ambiguous vocabulary. <clears throat> so keep that in mind because either way, the outcome is the same. Uh, verse 8, the second half, not a shield or a spear was seen among 40 elephs in Israel or 40,000 or 40 clans or 40 regiments. So Israel was not only suffering, but they were unarmed, which is we know those were the conditions. You know, Israel didn't come out of Egypt heavily armed. They came out as a group of slaves and barely had any implements. That's why the defeat by Joshua of all these Canaanite kings was so miraculous. Verse 9, uh, my heart is with Israel's and then it says princes, but that's misleading because there's no king at this time in Israel. It's, it's community leaders or, or organizers or people that are just kind of chiefs, big men in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. He's going to talk about these willing volunteers in a minute because they're the ones who are going to go up as part of God's army. Verse 10, you who ride on white donkeys, and in Hebrew it's light-colored, uh, Whatever the it's not a, it's not the word for white it's the word for light colored. There's two types of donkeys. There's the normal gray donkeys, and then there are these weird anomaly albino donkeys every now and then, and those are seen as a little bit nicer. And so those will be reserved for people who are lavish. So riding on white donkeys is a symbol of like riding in a pink Cadillac, all right, or whatever is the in our day a, a nice Tesla. You know, just whatever you can think of. It's a good ride. Um, you who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddled blankets. You who walk along the road. Well, the roads are abandoned. So who would be walking along the road? People who aren't worried about it because they're wealthy, because they're on the side of the oppressors. They can go freely. Their travel's not restricted. He's talking about the Canaanites and the oppressors. You who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the righteous acts of Yahweh, the righteous acts of His warriors in Israel. So it's saying, hey, listen to these people that are gathered around the watering holes, which would have been the peasants, the, the uh, Israelite peasants who are, over, who are underneath the rule of these oppressed people. Like, hey, listen to what they're singing. They're singing about the miraculous deeds of God, the righteous acts of Yahweh. What righteous acts? The Exodus, the overthrowing of Pharaoh, the bringing Israel into the land. Yeah, it was more than 20 years ago, but it's the same God, and they're still singing about Him because He is not... Uh, going to let his people be abandoned completely when they're oppressed. That's what the song is celebrating. Then the people of the Lord went down to the city gates. Wake up! Wake up, Deborah! And it means like rouse yourself, not like you're sleeping and wake up, but it means kind of like get up, get ready. Uh, wake up, Deborah! Wake up! Uh, speak in a song. NIV says break out in a song, but it, the actual Hebrew says speak a song, and it's a play on Deborah's name because the word for speak is Debor and Deborah's name is Deborah. So it's kind of a little pun. God does, does puns all the time in the Old Testament. They just don't translate. So sing a song, Deborah. Get to Deborahing, Deborah. Um, some came from Ephraim, whose roots were in Amalek. Benjamin was with the people who followed you. From Machir, captains came down. From Zebulun, those who bear a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah. Yes, Issachar was with Barak, rushing after him into the valley. 
So this is the first, like there's a rousing call for battle, and then these are the tribes that respond. It's giving the names of the people who responded from all parts of Israel at this raising up of God's leaders and this going to battle against the oppressors. However, not all the tribes did. In the clans of Reuben, or the, the districts as NIV says, in the area of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the campfires to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. In other words, Reubenites were like, eh, we could go off to battle, or we could just stay here and hang, tend our sheep and just, you know, let, let them do what they're going to do. And so there was that. There was just like deliberation, but no response to God's call to arms on behalf of the Reubenites. Gilead, and that's another term for Gad, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the heights of the field. So the tribes that were, were involved were the ones who were being praised in the song. The ones who came at the calling of Barak. The mustering of Deborah of the troops. But not all of Israel did. So this is celebrating the ones who did and kind of shaming the ones who didn't. Verse 19, kings came. They fought. The kings of Canaan fought at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. But they carried off no silver, no plunder. Now this is what we would expect when the kings come and fight. They're going to carry off plunder. They're going to carry off silver. That's what happens in battle. But this is saying, nope, not this time. This time something happened. And we see what happens in verse 20. Now note the cosmic imagery here. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon. March on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horse's hooves, galloping, galloping to mighty steeds. Uh, galloping go his mighty steeds. Curse Meraz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse his people bitterly because they did not come to the help the Lord. To help the Lord against the mighty. So now there's a battle going on. And the kings all gather and their horses, which is the ones pulling the chariots, are, are, are galloping. But... It says the stars fought against Sisera. The heavens intervened. Now this is poetic language, just like we saw back in Joshua last year with the whole sun stand still. That there is ancient Near East poetic language when a rousing victory that was supernaturally unbelievable happens, it would be described using cosmic terminology. And so this is, we know that stars weren't the ones that were actually coming down and fighting battles. This is poetic language about a rout on the part of God's people and God's leaders against these overwhelming forces of chariot-leading army Canaanite kings. And so that's what we're seeing celebrated in this song. And then it goes back again to cursing whoever mirages this town, this area, these people, we don't know exactly because they're never mentioned again. But they're cursed because they, weren't, they didn't take part. They, they had nothing to do with this battle. And so there's a curse on them. And that curse on them is contrasted to what's about to come next from unexpected. So Miraz, whoever they were in Israel, they didn't do what God had called them. They're cursed. But who steps up and does, the, who, who brings the victory? The very next verse. Most blessed of women be Jael, or Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. So the hero, the unexpected hero, is actually a Kenite, a pagan, a Gentile woman is the one who delivers. And so it's this unexpected twist. Like the people of Israel, not even all of Israel engaged in this battle, but a, a pagan Canaanite, Kenite, kind of Canaanite, you know, local native, that's who ended up winning the battle. So blessed is Jael. He asked for water, she gave him milk. 
in a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk or yogurt. Curdled milk is not appetizing to us, but yogurt is a little more appetizing, and that's what's being talked about. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, or in Hebrew, literally, it says between her legs or between her feet. And there's a little bit of innuendo there, ironic innuendo. It is between her feet, he sank, he fell, there he lay. Between her feet, he sank, he fell. He, where he sank, he, there he fell. And NIV says dead, but the verb is actually ravaged or despoiled. It's describing what happens when a city is overthrown. So it's this irony of this mighty military man, Sisera, entering the tent of this somewhat shady woman who lured him in, and then right there between her legs, he dies. Literally this time. Pierced through, run through. There's all kinds of overtones in this in terms of just uh, subtlety and, and, and irony of what happened to this mighty man at the hands of this unknown Gentile woman. Now it shifts, and there's a lament, or, or it takes a for, the, the poem shifts to Sisera's mother, the mother of this warlord oppressive. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? In other words, oh, he's being delayed. Sisera's delayed because he's, they won and they're dividing the spoils. And then this next line. NIV really does a disservice here. It says a girl or two for each man. It doesn't say that. In Hebrew it says a womb or two for each man. A womb or two. This is talking about what happens in war. The spoils of war. Soldiers destroy the army. They rape the women. And so the mother and the, the ladies of her court are actually celebrating this. Well, they're just out. The guys, they won their battle, so they're out you know, impregnating and raping the women. This gives you an idea of the kind of injustice that was going on. So a womb or two for each man. And colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered. Highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this is plunder. So this is the image of, of Sisera's mother who is the cipher for the Canaanite oppression saying, oh, he's, not, he's delayed because he's getting all this plunder. He's doing business as usual and, and we're going to be rich. Just think of the embroidered robes and the finery that we're going to have after he's done dealing with these dirty savages. And lo and behold, that's the irony of this poem is her son who she thinks is raping women is laying dead, pierced between the legs of a Gentile woman in her tent. So it's a super, super ironic and delightfully ironic to the Israelites who are on the other side of that raping and pillaging. And so that's why it's preserved here. So then, at the end, so may all your enemies perish, Yahweh, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And then the land had peace for 40 years. So this is a very interesting poem just from a historical perspective and, and, and the imagery that it uses and the, the irony and the word plays. It's just got a lot of interesting stuff. But theologically, what we see in this poem is that 20 years of oppression, God does not allow sin to go on forever. He doesn't allow oppression to go on forever. And there is a reckoning. And for Sisera, the raper, the pillager, the plunderer, for Sisera, that reckoning happened violently at the hands of this unknown, until now, Gentile woman, Jael. For what that says, and the reason this is preserved in Israel, because like the songs and the prophets later will cry out, this is a warning to any power that sets itself up in place of God. 
or any power that oppresses people that God loves that are created in His image. And so the warning in this song is very real. But also the promise in this song. See, warning and promise are two sides of the same coin. So this is a warning to God's enemies and the ones who would be the Siseras, who would be the Canaanite kings, who would be the oppressors. But it's also a promise to the people who are on the receiving end of that oppression. That it's not going to last forever and God is the one who will put things right. And when He does, it may not even be pretty. In fact, it probably won't be pretty. And that's what we see with the deliverance of Jael. And that's why this story, one of the reasons why this story, this violent story of a woman smashing a tent peg through a guy's head while he's asleep, I mean, it's, it's so sordid and it's, and it's violent and it's stomach-turning. It doesn't make a good VeggieTales cartoon. It doesn't make a good get-well card or precious moments. You know, you aren't going to see it in a, in a contemplative... Uh, not, you're not going to see this celebrated at the front of a Christian bookstore where all the crap is sold, right? All the stuff that's like, hey, Jesus is the Lord, and here's a lamb. You know, all this really nice stuff. You're not going to see that. You're going to have to go to the back where the commentaries and the biblical theology is to even know that this story is in the Bible. So the question, why is it in the Bible? How can something this violent, this uninspiring on the surface be in the Bible? Because the message is, is crucial to understanding the nature of God is that His judgment is real and, it's, and it's, it's tangible against those who oppress His people and against those who exploit and overpower. And so this, this is, in a sense, a theology of liberation for Israel. And that does give rise to a whole branch of theology called liberation theology which goes off the rails and said God is only always on the side of the poor against the rich, because that's not true either. Um, but this is at least where that comes from, the idea that when you are oppressed and you are being suffering that there's an end to it now it may be 20 years maybe longer but there is an end to the suffering and so israel in the meantime and israel is going to have to sing this song when they're in captivity in babylon because god's going to do to them when they become canaanite which is what the whole book of judges is about the canaanization of israel when they become the canaanites themselves and they do after deborah starting in the next cycle the downward spiral is going to continue, then God is actually going to do this against them. And they're going to be driven out of the land. And they're going to be in exile in Babylon, weeping by the rivers, because they had been the ones who had exploited the poor, if you read the prophets. They had been the ones who had, had, had uh, broken God's covenant, were taking advantage of people, were doing all the things the Canaanites had done. They were the Sisera's later in their history. Um, so this is a stark reminder right there at the beginning of what's going to be a downward spiral. And we'll see it uh, as we go throughout the book. But we're four minutes over. Yikes. So you guys, get out of here. Um, have a great week. There's food here if you want some. And we'll see you next week.